Hey, what's that you got, Pem? Oh, yeah, it's a treasure map. I got it off of those oddly colored animals. I've huh. never seen a pink lion before. What kind of treasure is it? It's the 32nd flavor of treasure of King Tutti Fruity, an old Egyptian monarch. Supposedly, it's a lot of emeralds and onyxes. But maybe, just maybe, it might have some kind of mint chocolate-themed treasure. Oh, okay. Black and green gems. I can see how that would be conflated with mint chocolate chip. But uh, can you care to explain why you think this map for an Egyptian treasure is leading you to dig up my Aunt Sharon's tulips? Well, the clue said I had to uproot the ant, and... Oh, wait. No, that's anti. Like in gambling. Don't! There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, one and all. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James Kinda Sorta Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. And we are fast-forwarding a good 20 years to 1985 for Yogi's Treasure Hunt. Fan... Oh, wait, sorry. Fantastic! Yes. I almost said, said fanrific. That's a different <laughs> Hanna-Barbera show. <laughs> yeah. One that I'm kind of disappointed did not cameo in this one. Surprisingly, no. But I, I don't know if Scatman Crothers was still alive at the time, so... He died around when this was made, if I recall right. Now, our episode may ostensibly be about Yogi's treasure hunt, like we said, but it is inextricably intertwined with the story of Hanna-Barbera's fortunes in the 1980s. You see, the 1970s, the prior decade, were honestly the best and the worst thing to happen to the company. They were pretty much their own competition. <laughs> Basically... They were certainly making money hand over fist with Scooby-Doo and his derivatives, the Super Friends, and new iterations on both Yogi Bear and the Flintstones. But the seeds of their decline were being sown with the success. The networks have to shoulder some of the blame here, too, as shows like Josie and the Pussycats, Speed Buggy, and Hong Kong Fooey were certainly hits. As often as not, the Big Three wouldn't renew them for second seasons. Instead, just airing them as they were for another year, or using them as a quick and cheap replacement for a new show that was really bombing in the ratings. I said, oh, so something Filmation made. Or packaging it up with a different show for, um, reasons. The Hong Kong Fooey Godzilla Hour, anyone? I don't think you can get weirder than, oh god, what was it, the, the Little Rascals Pac-Man Richie Rich Hour. No, probably not. So since Hanna-Barbera were the largest supplier of animated programs for Saturday mornings in that decade, this meant a good chunk of the shows that were getting replaced with their old ones were their own new shows to begin with. Funny how that works. <laughs> so, long story short, Hanna-Barbera burned through a lot of ideas and concepts through that decade, running their creative teams ragged in pursuit of something that would catch on to the degree of, well... Scooby, Yogi, the Super Friends, or the Flintstones. Success rate can be uh, debatable. <laughs> yeah. While the animated adventures of Superman, Wonder Woman, and the rest were moderately immune to the changing tides of taste, 
those other three properties were repackaged more often than they were simply renewed for new seasons. Scooby-Doo, for instance, would limp into the mid-80s, having received a not insignificant booster shot in the form of the now much maligned, but undeniably popular back then, character Scrappy-Doo. Eh, he Scrappy. Uh, I think the best way to sum up my feelings with him are mixed. I'm not a big fan of Scrappy, but I also think the Scrappy hate has been way overdone and needs to stop. The Scooby franchise would close its original run with the ultimate mixed bag, known as the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, where we have the good, Vincent Price, and the rotten, Flim Flam, in equal measure. When you... Make a Scrappy for Scrappy. <laughs> the Flintstones fell even sooner. Fred and company were being paired up with nearly anything Hanna-Barbera could think of, including Al Cap's inadvertent sensation, The Schmoo, and a truly misguided adaptation of Marvel's ever-loving blue-eyed thing. Boy, that's a show we gotta look at sometime. The Thing cartoon was... That was an odd beast. Yeah. And as for the schmoo, there'll be more details on that, whatever it is, later this year. Yeah, he got two cartoons. One was a Scooby-Doo clone, and one was him hanging out with Fred and Barney, who were now cops for some reason. But of all the Hanna-Barbera legacy properties, you could argue Yogi Bear got it the worst. Being used as a vehicle for ham-fisted environmental and moral tales in Yogi's gang then saddled with a cash-in on the simultaneous crazes of Star Wars and disco music in Galaxy Goof-Ups. Galaxy Goof-Ups is really bad. I think that's the uh, worst thing I'm willing to talk about to have Yoki Bear related to it. Because <laughs> it was just like, in that cartoon, it was like him and Huckleberry Hound took their idiot juice or something because they became just absolute morons. So by 1985, the company was slowly emerging from the morass they found themselves in. Their biggest bright spot, though, wasn't an in-house creation. The Smurfs were the brainchildren of Belgian artist Peyo, and they were doing tremendous business for NBC starting in 1981. This success led yet again to Hanna-Barbera becoming their own competition, as they tried to duplicate the formula, either with other similar comics properties like the Snorks, or their own attempts like the Trollkins and the Biscuits. Ah, uh, the Biscuits. <laughs> Go watch Pemmy's Cartoon Catastrophes review for that. For more on that one. Hey, that shows a, a thing. Still, with the Smurfs raking in the dough and the Snorks proving to be a four-season success... This gave Hanna-Barbera enough of a bankroll to slowly but surely bring the characters that brought them to the fore in the first place back to form. And without the network's involvement, because it's good old syndication. Mm-hmm. Syndication became really popular in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. It was the vehicle that Filmation would use to bring their toy adaptation shows, and Sunbow and Deke were becoming big players in. And uh, Disney would also end up using it when they started doing TV animation. That's right. But for Hanna-Barbera, their first syndicated foray was the fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera with its anchor show, the aforementioned Yogi's Treasure Hunt. 
Fantastic! Sorry, I have to throw that in any chance I get. (laughs) Now, the other programs in the block were indicative of their time. The Pawpaws were yet another Smurf-alike, while Galtar and the Golden Lance bore a striking resemblance to a certain Mattel toy line that Hanna-Barbera had passed on making a cartoon out of. I've watched Galtar fairly recently, and I have to say it's actually pretty decent. It's obvious where the influence is, but it still feels... If you can get past how visually similar it looks, it still feels like its own thing. So, But make no mistake, Yogi's adventures here were the anchor, even going so far as to share a theme song between the show itself and the whole programming block. Fantastic! Drink. <laughs> it's really catchy. <laughs> the first season was... Okay. It wasn't anything groundbreaking, but it was still a good back-to-basics approach to these characters, which is honestly what they needed after gallivating around in space and having to do battle with the likes of Dr. Bigot. I look forward to when we have to talk about that, too. And and Ford has, or looking forward, has, like, quotation marks on it. I'm just going to leave it at that. So the premise of the show is, well, right there in the name. With Top Cat acting as Command HQ, Yogi Bear and some of the most prominent fundamental animal animal Annie characters. Funny animal characters. Boy, easier done than said. <laughs> in the Hanna Barbera Library, explore the world on the Jelly Roger in search of lost treasures. I, I'm glad they got a uh, Arnold Stag back as a uh, Top Cat. Mm-hmm and constantly on their tail, and returning to Hanna-Barbera Media after over a decade of rights issues-induced absence are Dick Dastardly and Muttley from Wacky Races. Yay! I'm happy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they're perpetually trying and failing miserably to get to the riches before ending up in either proverbial or literal stitches. As normal. Rather than decking them out in their Wacky Races outfits, they're decked up in their outfits from a the uh, Dashley and Muttley and their flying machines show. So. Or Stop the Pigeon, since most people know it by the name of the theme, the theme song rather than the actual name of the show. Stop the Pigeon. Stop the Pigeon. Stop Funny. the Pigeon. Sorry. Sorry. I, 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 I'm flashing back. PTSD from the second episode that we'll talk about. <laughs> now, voice cast-wise, of course, Dawes Butler returns as Yogi, Huckleberry Hound, Snagglepuss, Quick Draw McGraw, Snooper and Blabber, and Augie Doggy. Got a funny story about that, actually. Dawes is a lot older at this point. Some of the voices sound a little off because of his age, I think. And I remember I played this in a stream once, and someone in the chat was like, God, I don't know who's voicing Yogi and Huckleberry Hound, but these imitations are terrible. And I'm just like, it's the original guy. <laughs> And of course, his cohort and podcast favorite, Don Messick, would reprise Boo Boo, Ranger Smith, and Muttley, as well as provide narration when needed. <laughs> it sounds like this. I almost wish this was a film show because every time we mention Don Messick, I do like two thumbs up, but it's like nobody can see that. <laughs> as Pemmy mentioned, Arnold Stang returns as Top Cat, and Paul Winchell returns as Dick Dastardly, and Hanna Barbera veteran John Stevenson rounds out the cast once again ably stepping into the role of Doggy Daddy, since that character's original voice actor, Doug Young, was no longer active in the field. Yep. 
Yeah, he, yeah before this before the show, he actually ended up taking over for Doug Young in a few shows because uh, I think the first time was in Yogi's Gang because uh, Doug Young was uh, helping his ailing wife or something. But Stevenson does a really good doggy daddy. He sounds like dead on. So. so this first half of our review will focus on a season one episode. And then when we get into season three, well, all bets are off. But more <laughs> on that when we cross that bridge. And the commercial break, the bridge is over. <laughs> so let's get started with The Curse of Tutti Frutti, written by John K. Luden. Wait, no, 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 that Little Richard never comes up. Should I talk about the actual animation in this show, or should I wait until after we're done with the episode? Oh, go ahead now. Well, I'm, I'm, the animation in this show is also, to be honest, pretty clumsy. It's not horrible, but it definitely feels sloppy. And I, I checked out the studio and ha we I didn't expect a tie-in for uh, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, but uh, yeah, it, it's Wang. It's Wang. Yep, Wang Studios from uh, Taiwan. So instead of Little Richard, maybe I should be doing Everybody Wang Chung. To... No, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, Wang's quality is—they're uh, not my least favorite studio, but. And they, pr- I've seen a few productions they've done where they can prove that they're they can be competent, but that's like a one out of fifty chance, I'll say. <laughs> uh, I'll say this looks better than Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling did. Oh, to be sure, but it still doesn't look great. It kind of feels like they don't know how to animate the characters. I think it's the weirdest thing. Like I don't know. Anyways, okay, that's all I have to say. So. A delivery from Bad Guys Incorporated is dropped into the ocean next to a buoy with Dick Dastardly's initials on it. I, I gotta say, I don't know what they made that package out of, but it's definitely water-resistant. Mm-hmm. It's Dastardly's new secret weapon, which Muttley promptly drops onto Dick's back via a winch. Of course. And what is this weapon, pray tell? It's a 101 disguise kit, which includes costumes for gorillas, hula dancers, and... Yogi and Boo Boo. Well, you know, I guess the uh, people who made those costumes knew they were in the Hanna-Barbera show. Honestly, though, Dastardly and Muttley could have just wandered over to Canada's Wonderland back then, or a licensed Jellystone campground for those costumes. Or or Universal Studios. (laughs) Universal wasn't open yet. Oh, don't. Anyhow, they intend to use these costumes to infiltrate the Jelly Roger and reach the next treasure before the heroes can. And, of course, Dick has to make a comment about how, doesn't it make you feel great when I'm brilliant? So as they climb aboard, Topcat is calling the team to the control room to put them on the case of the recently discovered tomb of King Tutti Frutti, which has 31 varieties of treasure the Museum of Not-So-Modern Art wants for their Egyptian exhibit. Okay, Hanna-Barbera should be getting a little careful with these ice cream jokes. Baskin-Robbins don't play. (laughs) Back when Baskin-Robbins was known as 31 Flavors, which they no longer are known as. Right. That's a joke that doesn't make sense in modern day. And yet they still made a joke about that in Justice League. Questions like, I was right, 32 Flavors. Regardless, presumably that makes this what you would think to be a routine delivery mission. Now the foul Yogi arrives late, and Ranger Smith sends him for a pencil... And the real Yogi comes in the other way, having no idea what Ranger Smith is talking about. So Ranger Smith gets frustrated and sends a faux boo-boo to go get a pencil. Which, of course, uh, Muttley's voice morphing into 
like Boo Boo's voice was interesting. <laughs> Props to Don Messick for pulling that off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little surprised Ranger Smith isn't slightly suspicious. Only slightly, though, because we have a whole plot to get through on this premise, and let's be honest, most, not all, but most, of these characters aren't the brightest bulbs in the light fixture. No. I, I, I think they make jokes about that in some of the other episodes, like, we sent for the greatest treasure hunts to help us, but they were busy, so we got Yogi Bear and his gang. <laughs> Topcat also tells the team there's a dangerous mummy's curse, which Doggy Daddy laughs in the face of. He even had one more. Ha! And Fao Yogi returns with the real Boo-Boo, who does notice something's amiss. Uh, thank you, Mr. Luden. Boo-Boo noticing does help me suspend disbelief. <laughs> you sound weird, Yogi, and you look terrible. <laughs> and Top Cat, as usual, has a clue for the team. To find the mummy's tomb, methinks, find the button on the Sphinx. And he also warns them about sand traps. They ruin your golf game. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, the fake Yogi exits to scheme, and the real Yogi returns with another pencil to a very confused Ranger Smith. Who thinks that he needs to go, he needs a vacation. <laughs> Which, to be quite honest, Ranger Smith, even if Ranger Smith's being dumb in this scene, I mean, he probably does need a vacation, let's be honest. Yeah. So, arriving in Egypt, Snagglepuss spots a Sphinx. Then another one that's already literally spotted. Then one reclining that he declares to be pretty tutti-frutti. Um, Snag? Projecting any, a little bit there? I was about to say, if there's any character in this cast that's going to notice somebody being fruity, it's Snagglepuss. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Of course not. Just a little typecasting there on poor Snag. <laughs> so to make their escape and delay their competition, Dastly and Muttley unleash something they believe the Jelly Roger can't handle. Termites. Cartoon termites. The worst termites. Mm -hmm. They're about to dive away when Ranger Smith stops them. Then the Ranger notices the termites and says he's glad the ship is made of steel and not wood. That's some pretty wooden-looking steel, guy. Yeah, heck of a paint job. Impressive. <laughs> That's some camouflage-level stuff. So the termites decide to adopt the diet of moths and eat up the schemer's disguises, giving away the scheme and causing a hasty, painful retreat. I, I do like the dialogue between Ranger Smith and Dastardly in that scene, because Ranger Smith is, uh, what was it? And Ranger Smith's like, Dick Dastardly, what are you doing here? And Dastardly's like, losing my pride, it seems, or something like that. It's like, oh, you lost that a long time ago, Dick. <laughs> At the suspected Sphinx, the team splits up to find the button. Huck amiably wanders into an ear in his inimitable fashion. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling Clementine. Into a literal eardrum, I might add. Yeah. And he asks the Echo if anyone's home. Hello? Hello? Is anybody to home? No! So get out of here! Hmm. Kind of antisocial for an echo, ain't it? Muttley, meanwhile, stumbles on a modern convenience for such an ancient monument. The delivery entrance. Ha. <laughs> we also learned that Dick Dastley is a real gentleman and only and doesn't kiss on the first date. Oof. Yeah, because that, that's... I actually got 
a bit of a chuckle from that scene where yeah. naturally it was like, the delivery entrance, Muttley, I can kiss you, Muttley. Puckers up. Puckers up, and he's just like, not on the first date. <laughs> Back with the good guys, Quickdraw deploys a computer and a long, gag-riddled story short, it turns out he's standing on the secret button, which is in fact the belly button. Of course. And don't you forget it. Yeah, after Quickdraw struggles with the computer, they get in and find an inscription warning of the curse, which they disregard, never once noticing the mummy standing above the inscription who comes to life and swipes at Huck. Of course not. Again, not the smartest guys or observant. Right. But they get the job done. So Quickdraw, Snag, and the Dachshund duo are lost, at least according to Doggy Daddy's map. I wonder if that map had the word lost marked on it. <laughs> Probably. As they're proceeding, Snagglepuss finds a relic, a cheap souvenir even, and they find an inscription. Those who find this curse and read, they shall turn to lives of greed. And apparently Danhausen helped write this script because now they are cursed! <laughs> They're cursed and fighting over a frickin' flashlight. Yeah, suddenly the trio of uh, adult characters, uh, age-wise, not maturity-wise, are paranoid, argumentative, and greedy to a petty degree, to the extent that Doggy Daddy insists Augie pay him back the quarter he loaned last Christmas. Wow. I bet uh, Augie used it to play Pac-Man. And there's one line Snagglepuss gives us that I'm sure you're going to be using for your out-of-context cartoons Twitter account. Oh, of course. I mean, how can I not resist Snagglepuss saying, I hate to break up a foursome, but I gotta exit. It's like, excuse me, what? <laughs> Whoa, don't be using that sort of language around my innocent, pure-of-mind son of mine. <laughs> one of two great out-of-context lines in this episode. I'll, I'll mention the other one later. So, elsewhere, Dastardly and Muttley are making good use of the maps that the latter grabbed, and they encounter Yogi, Boo Boo, and Ranger Smith, as Yogi is calling for another clue from Top Cat. The clue is, if a sandwich you like is tasty to eat, then a sandwich you dig is really a treat. And, and see, Top Cat's coming up with all these while playing golf. What a multi-talented guy. Yogi figures this means a kitchen, and Dashley and Muttley break out the disguise kit, the former appearing as a local tour guide, and the latter a little old lady. Muttley does a lot of cross-dressing in this series, I will say that. <laughs> yeah, the downside of not having any female cast members on the regular. So Dastardly quick talks the trio into following their tour group straight into a trap sealing them into a room filled with quicksand. It doesn't need to rush on our account, Boo Boo worriedly observes. That's a good line. Yep. Granted, that, uh, that quicksand seemed to, like, just give up when it got down to their necks, because they no longer sink at that point. Yeah. And once they're up to their necks, Top Cat plays through and repeats the clue. And then Yogi realizes that this is the sand which you dig. Also, I since I, I'm going through the episode while we're doing this, I just noticed the animation goof they made. Oh? They, yeah, they forget to finish drawing Yogi's face in a scene, and you can see that it's just the cell is, like, clear between uh, Top Cat and where Yogi's face should be. It's just blank. 
Oh, whoopsie. Straight up forgot to finish drawing him. Or colored in between, like, they're just, I don't know what they did, but they, yeah, goof. <laughs> sure enough, they dig straight into the treasure room. And hey, Yogi Ernst is smarter than average boast, for sure, this time. Yep, and that's a lot of treasure. Yeah, reuniting with Huck, Augie, Snoop, and Blab, Ranger Smith asks where the remaining teammates are, and the three greed-afflicted characters bicker and insult their way into the scene to Augie's continued shame. uh, Even finding another statue that looks just like the previous statue. Recycled assets in a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Scandalous! So, Dastardly and Muttley arrive, and Muttley quickly hatches a Scooby-Doo plot. I mean, a plan to dress up as mummies to scare the treasure hunters off. Okay, before we get any further, this is the other second great out-of-context line, was Dastardly looking in and going, Muttley, check out all that booty! He hasn't seen booty that nice since he co-starred with Penelope Pitstop. Oh! Good one. But of course... This is precisely when the mummy of King Tutti Frutti returns to the plot, and Muttley races in fright, leaving Dick to assume the massive mummy is actually his canine companion. Yeah, he doesn't realize that, you know, Muttley just gained three, like, just became three times his own height. Even a big old press slam doesn't dissuade Dastardly's delusion. I think he's just impressed by that, honestly. <laughs> It's like, wow, Muttley, having Wang really taught you how to do some WWE moves. Yogi's trying to get his greed-cursed teammates to snap out of it via American football referee gags, as Dastardly and King Tootie Fruity make their presences known. So Yogi penalizes himself 100 yards. That way! (laughs) That's another good line! That was actually a pretty good gag. I really have to admit, as basic as the storytelling is... The jokes are actually pretty decent. Yep. Some episodes get some good ones, some episodes less so, but, you know, that, that all, this one's doing pretty good. Yeah. Dastardly finally realizes what's up as he and Muttley hide in the sarcophagus. And eventually, Augie Doggy reverses the curse by reading the curse in reverse. Hey, that's convenient. At this point, Super Snooper finally speaks up to take credit for that. Doggy Daddy should have read him the riot act for that stolen honor. That's my son who said it first, you fence-walking wannabe! (laughs) Yeah, what what was up with that, though? Snooper just, like, out of nowhere, like, that's a good idea I came up with. It's like, you didn't do a damn thing! So the mummy arrives, and Yogi tries to appeal to him, but all Tutti Frutti wants is to congratulate him for being the first to find it even giving Yogi his sarcophagus. And a handshake. Yeah. Which feels very anticlimactic. <laughs> Little bit. Little bit. It's also worth mentioning that Dastly and Muttley are still in the sarcophagus. So when the Jelly Roger team is presenting it at the Museum of Not-So-Modern Art, that's the very instant the Dastardly duo get free. Must have had a lot of air with that sarcophagus. Either that, or it wasn't quite airtight. I mean, how many years old was it? It probably had had enough decay to have some 
enough cracks to let let a little air in. Boo Boo, of course, comments that the uh, villains seem to have hitched, <laughs> come for a ride. Oh, wait, wait, I'm getting a text. Oh, oh, it's 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 Jordan and Mark from That's Not Quite All, folks. They say their Ouija board is acting up again with the ghost of Little Richard asking for food. Oh, all this invoking Tutti Frutti must have must have made him active again. I'm going to go help them sort this out. While we do that, we're going to take a commercial break. See ya. Yogi's Treasure Hunt will continue after these messages. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, Bob Clampett was the master of the wild take and directed some of the most off-the-wall Looney Tunes cartoons ever made. You could argue that Daffy Duck was never daffier than under his supervision. In shorts including such all-time favorites as Drafty Daffy and The Great Piggy Bank Robbery. Check them out with us in two weeks. We now return to Yogi's Treasure Hunt. As you probably gathered from our preamble, behind-the-scenes details on this show are kind of hard to come by. I'm truthfully not sure how the change occurred, but as the treasure hunt went on, it got weird. And also very satirical and parody a parody among parody. I mean, don't get us wrong. Yogi, Huck, and the rest were still hunting for treasure. But at the same time, the show was incorporating parodies of 60 Minutes, Star Trek, The Smurfs. I have to imagine that had to be cathartic for the writers. Not to mention lots of pop culture references to people like Sex Doctor Ruth, of all people. Now, this wasn't a betrayal of what made these characters work, like Galaxy Goofups was, but rather applying these familiar characters into these parodies let them actually do something fairly fresh that still kept to their wheelhouses. I can only guess that part of this has to do with Tom Ruger being in charge, who's probably best known for his work on Animaniacs. To be sure. But uh, Pemmy presented to me one of the wildest episodes of the bunch, Yogi's Heroes, which was also written by John K. Luden. I actually didn't notice it was the same writer on both of those. Wow. James noticing the details I missed. That's okay. You catch ones I miss all the time. <laughs> I, I used to joke that maybe the change was because the writers just stopped giving a crud, just started putting whatever into it, but... If that's the case, then I think it, I actually kind of enjoyed that they went this nuts with it. So we open with a HBTV news broadcast with a visual of Mount Toonmore with Yogi, Snag, Huck, and Quickdraw in place of the presidents typically depicted on Mount Rushmore. And Topcat is the anchor for the network. Trouble is erupting on the other side of the globe. No, not the volcano eruption that pops up. It's actually unrest in Central Europe, and no, no, not the person who can't sleep that pops up either. Already, this episode is positively dense with gags. Instead, we learn about civil unrest between two countries, Bearzil and Dicker Agua. God, I can't believe yeah. that name. And their leaders are exactly who you'd assume from those names. Yogi Bear and Dick Dastardly. The unbiased Top Cat is naturally rooting for Bearzil, as the conflict is getting nasty to the point of global-scale raspberries. Yeah, their countries are even shaped like their heads. And, quite literally, blowing raspberries at each other. Pemmy? Hmm. Is this revenge for the tomfoolery show? Ha! <laughs> no, that, that'll, be, that'll be when we watch the, the new shmoo. <laughs> 
I still don't regret it. <laughs> so we first check in on Nicaragua, where entry costs sixteen ninety five. That's $42.37 in today's dollars, at least as of this recording. Also, now that I'm looking at, like, the scene of uh, Dashley doing his speech, I don't know who drew that scene, but Dashley looks kind of giant compared to his audience. Yeah. But yeah, in this speech, Richard Milhouse Dastardly is vowing to steal the Berzillian Crown Jewels. Muttley leads a chant of their leader's name... Think about that for a second, folks. Yes, we do see Muttley dressed in a cheerleader outfit, raising letters that spell dick. Also, Dick Dastardly is a dictator. Hmm. Ah! Muttley also sneaks in a cheer for himself. Of course. Well, you know, it's Muttley. He deserves it. (laughs) And on top of all this, I should mention that including the middle name Millhouse is a dig at disgraced former president Richard M. Nixon. Who is also a dick. Yeah, and this tricky dick is very much an indisputable crook. (laughs) And and the uh, middle name of uh, Milhouse does... I don't know if... I think that... I'm pretty sure this is the first time that's mentioned, but that actually is kept, because even in the Wacky Races reboot, there's a scene where Dick Dastardly says his full name, and he says Richard Milhouse Dastardly. So... Oh, everything's coming up Millhouse. <laughs> Bearzil, meanwhile, is the picnic basket capital of the world, and Yogi's most pressing concern is that some devil made off with his angel's food cake. What a crumb. Boo Boo tries to get him to focus on Dastardly's announcement, particularly since uh, Ranger Smith is nowhere to be found in this cartoon. He finally took his vacation. I guess so. Then again, also seeing that Yogi gained a whole country, I can just see like Ranger Smith being like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. Fair. Yogi's overall not concerned with the crown jewel situation with his secure safe keeping the jewels secure. Except it hasn't. Don't! And for a while it seems as the his uh, steel vault is somehow filled with co- cobwebs. Top Cat interjects to let them know they haven't been stolen. They've just gone missing, and if they don't beat Dick Dastardly to them, they'll be locked up to rot in prison for the rest of their lives after Nicaragua overthrows them. So what's the bad news? <laughs> the ever-on-the-ball Quickdraw asks. It is weird that uh, a lot of the characters got their sidekicks, yet Babalui is not a regular character on this show. Mm-hmm. So the clue is, when you look to your leader, a bear of renown, and you'll dive ahead for the jewels of the crown. Oh, hey, look at the new Huckleberry Hound toy. It's it's Secret Service Huckleberry Hound. As chief of security, he says it's his job to protect Yogi from foreign spies, which of course means he falls for Dick and Muttley disguised as pizza delivery types. I have to say, Muttley's uh, disguise makes him look like he's dressed as a... Actually, it kind of makes both of them look like they're less dressed as uh, pizza delivery people and more like they're dressed like Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Yogi called in the others for a cabinet meeting. And they're in cabinets. Literally. Literally. Oh, boy. Oh, this this show loves any visual gag or pun it can throw. Yep, the puns are flying freely, that's for sure. We include our requisite apology to our friend Sunset Slade. 
He's probably screaming already. <laughs> yeah. Yogi still is more focused on food than the hunt for jewels. And Dastardly and Muttley now get past Quick Draw in effectively the same gag as with Huck. Of course. I mean, it, it's so nice they did it twice. Despite Boo Boo's obvious concern, Yogi gets a blast out of that pizza. Which, what little you get to see of that pizza looks less like a pizza and more like a quesadilla. But, okay. Snoper is the first one to realize that the delivery guys were dastardly and muttly. And Blabbermouse also observes the pizza was delivered cold. <laughs> That's the last straw for Yogi. Yep. Blow us up. We can handle that. But deliver food cold? Uh-uh. This means war. Now back from the break, Topcat is now doing war correspondence as he is live on the battlefront. Until he decides this is the time for his two weeks worth of vacation. I mean, that's smart thinking on his part, let's be honest. Yeah. Also impressive uh, for the news channel to have like a desk and a monitor they can just take into the firing range. <laughs> as he departs, the announcer states to stay tuned for the Good Night Show. Then we get an ad for a, quote, new show, unquote, dubbed the Trio of Triumph. And before we even get to see said Trio of Triumph, we get, like, lots of exploding things, such as ships, bridges, you name it. Yeah. I, I guess they're having fun with the fact they're on syndication and not have to worry about the network sensors. Most notable is the ad features a plane hitting a skyscraper. Yeah, I don't think Boomerang and or Cartoon Network were keen to rerun this episode after 9-11. I also want to point out that they're playing music from the uh, from the Super Friends during this whole scene. So the Tree of Triumph is Quick Draw McGraw in his El Cabong guys, Huckleberry as Huckle Hero, a persona that appeared earlier in the show's run, and Boo Boo as Ram Boo Boo, of course a Rambo parody. Yeah, and it's like the most surreal looking thing since it's like boo-boo except just absolutely jacked. <laughs> now here's the really interesting part. Supposedly, Hanna-Barbera were exploring making this concept a full-fledged spin-off of the Treasure Hunt shows with an anti-bullying message. But plans were discarded after Turner bought the company from Taft. I actually did not know that. That's kind of crazy. I would have watched it. <laughs> so the ad for the Good Night Show wasn't just a one-off gag because it is actually up next and live from the warfront in the style of a USO benefit for the troops type show. With uh, the announcer being Mr. Jinx from Pixie and Dixie. Yep. And the host is Hokey Wolf. Yogi and Dastardly are the guests and eagle-eyed Hanna-Barbera fans can spot the likes of Wally Gator, Squidly Diddly, Lippy the Lion, and Hardy Har Har in the audience, as well as... as... Dum-Dum. Okay, I couldn't tell if that was Dum-Dum or Breezley Bruin or... or Rough of Rough and Ready. It's it's Dum-Dum from, uh... uh from Touche Turtle, you're right. It's kind of just interesting to have Hokey Wolf and uh, Top Cat in the same show since both characters were originally modeled as parodies of, uh... Phil Silvers. Mm -hmm. Mercifully, this does bring us all the way back to the actual plot. As Hokey introduces Dastardly, who plans to rule the entire world by next Tuesday, and stealing the Barazillion crown jewels is the first step, which will make him rich, rich, rich! <laughs> Cue Muttley with his objection via Chomp. To which uh, 
Dashley introduces Muttley as his vice dictator, who will also be rich, rich, rich. Yogi, meanwhile, is up next, and he paid Hokey to say nice things about him. Knowing Hokey Wolf, that might have been a requirement. <laughs> and Yogi introduces a clip of Snooper and Blabber behind enemy lines to steal the secret recipe for Dicaraguan banana upside down cake. It sounds about right. Also, why are they? Do- how are they doing live filming like this in the 1980s? It's a fair question. Furthermore, why are you showing this when Dick Dastardly and Muttley are literally there? An even better question. Sadly, though, the first thing the deductive duo pulls off is an alarm and a cage trap. Also, another animation glitch, because they, they're they said that they turn on the light switch. They actually turn off the light switch. They push it down instead of up. Well, I suppose it's possible that there was more than one switch, and you know how these... Uh, when there's more than one switch to one set of lights, they inevitably get mixed up. Fair. But it, it, it's still a good point. <laughs> Dastardly and Muttley head off to torture their war prisoners, and Yogi bemoans the tragedy of his empty picnic basket. Jeez, Yogi's kind of a douche nozzle here. That's a really douchey scene with him. Yeah. That night in Nicaragua, Dastardly interrogates the resolute Snooper and Blabber. And as they resist, he pulls out his signature torture method. Reruns of his old cartoon! Catch the pigeon. Catch the pigeon. Come on, the show wasn't nearly close to being that bad. Talk about weird self-parody. <laughs> yeah. I personally like that show. but Me too. You know, I, I also like anything that has Dick Dastardly and Muttley in it. So, Back in Brazil... Yogi summons the Secretary of Intelligence. Undercover Elephant? Good grief, what a deep-cut character. Not to mention, they act like we should know who that is. Which is, well, I and you do, but, I mean, the average kid in the 1980s? Yeah, uh, for the uninitiated, Undercover Elephant was a supporting feature on the CB Bears show. And Undercover Elephant, well, I mean, I think the name says it's Says everything right there. <laughs> Yogi takes one look and listen to the big guy and believes he's doomed. Augie, however, my son, my son, decides to tell them that they should try hiring the trio of Triumph. Despite the fact we literally just saw Quickdraw McGraw in their room like two seconds ago. Yogi does think it's a good idea, but according to a book juggling snagglepuss, they're too broke. And he is literally juggling the books. So, Yogi resolves to win it on their own. And here comes the patent parody that Pemmy just can't shut up about. Come on, when else are you ever going to see Yogi Bear dressed as Patton? It's a fair point. Give me liberty, or give me a hot foot sundae! It's such a weird parody, that, especially for a kid's show. I mean, this whole episode is really weird for a kid's show. We have a parody of global unrest and war in a freaking kids show that's not gi joe <laughs> also the the only way this could have been better is if they had yogi at one point say hey i love the smell of picnic baskets in the morning hey <laughs> dick dastardly you son of a bitch i read your book sorry <laughs> i'd read his book <laughs> so storming the beach of norman i mean dicaragua Yogi says to Snag and the Dachshunds that with him as their leader, they'll never get caught. Gilligan cut to them roped up in Dastardly's jail. 
please ignore my original remark. And since Yogi and company also have no clue to the whereabouts of the crown jewels, they are met with the same fate as Stupor and Blubber, who enter in a trance singing the Stop the Pigeon song. Oh, the humanity. And then get tied up to, to experience more. Augie again suggests the trio triumph, recommending the installment plan for payment. Well, they're the only treasure crew members left uncaptured. So Yogi pulls on his, uh, manages to wrangle one of his arms free to pull on his tie and not untie himself and pull out a freaking Inspector Gadget phone out of his hat. On another planet, I'm not even going to ask. This cartoon (laughs) is looped in on itself in terms of logic and it's just not worth it. On the bright side, we do get a nice cameo appearance from Baba Louie. Sure. I think. (laughs) On this other planet, Baba Louie takes Yogi's call and sees that the trio can fit it in their busy schedule of playing Go Fish. Despite the fact we, again, literally saw a quick trawl at the Brazil, like, capital, like, literally a scene ago. (laughs) Yeah. Again, this cartoon is looped in on itself in terms of logic. But hey, I'm always happy to see Baba Louie. So off the trio of Triumph go to Earth, where we return to find the rest of the treasure hunters under the Stop That Pigeon whammy. Stop the pigeon, stop the pigeon, stop the pigeon. (coughs) Sorry. Anyways. Dastardly and Muttley finally extract Top Cat's clue from Yogi with the statue of Liberty behind T.C., which, of course, the Statue of Liberty has an ice cream cone instead of a torch in its hand. Mm-hmm. Also, I just had a thought. Maybe, just maybe, it's not that the cartoon is bad. It's just the thing that's possessing them or hypnotizing them or whatever, brainwashing them, whatever phrase you want to do, isn't that. It's just the fact that the Catch the Pigeon theme song is just, or Stop the Pigeon theme song, is just that much of an earworm. Don't I know it? <laughs> So as Dastardly puts it all together and he and Muttlius make their move, the trio uh, of triumph... Wait, before you get that, I gotta point out that, again, they do the, like, you know, Dastardly's like, I will be rich, 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 and the bite gag. But this time, Muttley has literally swallowed half of freaking Dastardly when he bites him. And then as they make their move, it's Muttley walking with Dastardly still halfway down his gullet. <laughs> The trio of Triumph arrive, and El Kabong, uh, Kabong's sense back into the others. Kabong! And they're in hot pursuit of the jewels, too, though Snoop and Blab are still whammied. Of course they are. I, I feel sorry for Snoop and Blabber in this episode. The humiterations we endure in pursuit of a paycheck. <laughs> I do want to say the, the gag they did with... Uh... Muttley and Dastardly, when they jump cut back to them, is actually made me legitimately laugh the first time I saw this episode. Yep. They find the crown jewels and they're rolling in tow. Literally. <laughs> it's like, we're rolling in tow! And we found the treasure, too! It's just like, God. I was like, okay, that got me. I, I actually laughed quite a bit at that. So how are they going to get stopped? Well... Ramboo-boo is so powerful, he lifts the statue and shakes the villains into Bearcatraz. That's a lot of shaking. 
Also, Bearcatraz? <laughs> wow, that was fast. Some of these endings are pretty anticlimactic. It's just like, yep, there we go. So Top Cat celebrates the end of the war. The two landmasses kiss and make up. Well, sort of. tongue out afterwards. Seemingly, peace on Earth. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? And the trio of Triumph return to their home planet with the crown jewels as payment. It all seems well, except Snooper and Blabber are still under the stop the pigeon whammy, to which Yogi doesn't seem to give much of a crap about. <laughs> I guess the teams at Hanna-Barbera learned their lesson from this show overall, since it paved the way for a similar back-to-basics ideal with projects like the Hanna-Barbera Superstars 10 movies. Not to mention, they also, uh, for the fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera, they brought back uh, Johnny Quest in the 80s. They did. And it was actually pretty decent. It feels very 80s, I will say that, in comparison to the original. It doesn't have quite the pulp filling of the original show, but it's still quite good, in my opinion. I enjoyed it. The Hanna-Barbera Superstar 10 movies were also used as part of the fantastic block here and there. But a little oddity crops up. With uh, Yogi and the Spruce Goose, you would think Dastardly and Muttley would be back yet again, since those rights issues have been cleared up. But instead we get... Uh, the Dread Baron and Mumbly, and the Dread Baron's voiced by Paul Winchell in this, which just makes it even weirder. Mm-hmm. I, I can only guess they wanted to just reuse those characters one more time, or maybe the movie was in production before they knew the rights got fixed, or whoever wrote it didn't know the rights got fixed. Something happened. And a Barbera would also give a syndicated revival to the Jetsons. Which actually did pretty well, from my understanding. Also had episodes animated by Toei, of all people. Yeah. All these revivals were much more similar in style to their original counterparts than, say, having to pair up Fred Flintstone with the frickin' schmoo! Yeah, because the Jetsons was more or less the Jetsons, except a little more dumbed down since it was actually being made directly for a kid's audience than originally going for prime time. Now, quality, as always, is debatable. But the animation was still improving, and it kept Hanna-Barbera viable, as ownership of the company went from Taft Enterprises to Turner Broadcasting, where the last great gasps of the original studios would occur. Because uh, that was back when Ted Turner was buying literally everything. Pretty much. But uh helped him have a bit of a revival in the 90s, um, especially with uh, Cartoon Network and everything. Absolutely. Unfortunately, eventually Warner ends up buying everything, and that's when the death knell sadly kind of finally hit. But hey, if you want to catch these episodes, you can find them streaming on Amazon and on iTunes. Oh, okay. hey, Pam, I think <laughs> you found something in Aunt Sharon's tulip bed. Let's see what it is. Yeah, a water main. Oh, no! <laughs> okay. I, knew, I knew this treasure hunt was just going to get me all wet. I think this is where the, our budget for restocking the breakfast cereal is going to go for this episode, folks. So we'll see you next time. Well, better a water main than a sewer main. Oh, jeez. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.